All right, well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, uh, then turn to Philippians chapter 4. And if you don't have one, uh, we do have a bunch back there. I realize in this moment they're not incredibly accessible, uh, but if you wanted to get one, we could probably make that happen. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, please get one. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 is where we'll be this morning. So if you notice, just looking at the text, there's not a whole lot of Philippians left. Did you notice that? Do you notice it right now in this moment? Yeah, uh, we are going to have a farewell to Philippians next week. So Philippians, this is week 30 in the book of Philippians. And so we will have spent 31 weeks in the book of Philippians after next week. And so please uh, come back and join us for our farewell to the Philippians next week. All right, but this week, Philippians chapter 4. If you're there, we're going to look at it together. Philippians chapter 4. All right. Beginning in verse 10, and it says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, so this is the second day of 2022. None of us knows what 2022 has in store for us. But it seems every year people are in the habit of doing what on New Year's? Making New Year's resolutions, right? Um, I was just asking the question, why is it that we feel as though making New Year's resolutions is such a good thing, such a beneficial thing for us? A resolution at the beginning of the year is really about being honest with your present condition, right? Being honest with your present condition so as to learn the distance between you and your ideal situation. I'm being honest about my present condition so that I can learn about the distance between me and my ideal situation. And what is it that I need to do in my life to take me to the ideal situation that I have for me? And so based on that, we make resolutions, resolutions that help support us in getting toward our ideal state. Isn't that what a resolution is? Now, you might think, well, this has, this has to do with everything. It has to do with my spirituality. It has to do with my family life. It has to do with my own personal fitness, which is always, always ranks number one on the list. Um, and it has to do with basically every area of my life. Where is it that I'm falling short in my life of my ideal? And so we make resolutions to get us there. Improving your current condition, however, you need to understand can become an incredible trap for you. Improving your current condition can turn into a vicious cycle of discouragement throughout the rest of your entire life. My situation is never good enough. 
I never have enough. Nothing is ever right. I always have somewhere to go. It's never as though I've arrived. Now, you might think, well, part of that is good, right? Because we're constantly trying to become more like Christ and mature. So we've never arrived, right? Even Paul says, I've not arrived. Yes, to some degree, that is correct. However, we're not talking about our spiritual condition. We're talking about our earthly circumstances, how you find yourself, the job you have, the amount of money you have, the state of your physical fitness. Paul, in this situation, finds himself where? In prison. Paul's earthly circumstances found himself in prison, and he seeks his release. Do you remember us talking about that? Paul wanted to be released. He actually anticipated himself being released, and yet, even though he wasn't released, what was Paul's attitude? It was an attitude of joy. Did Paul have an attitude of joy even though his circumstances weren't meeting his ideal circumstances. He rejoices always. He prays. He casts his concerns on the Lord. He thinks about good and godly things. And those are the three categories that we've been looking at over these last three weeks. That if you have anxiety about your situation, cast it on the Lord. Are you rejoicing always? You should be in the Lord. What are you thinking about? You should be thinking about these things. And so he's talking about our current circumstances, our current situation. What are we to do in the here and now? How are we to find this contentment? He wants the church to learn, doesn't he? Doesn't Paul, out of all things, he's saying, here's what I want you to aspire to. And here's the joy I want you to have. Can you have joy without having contentment in your circumstance? Let's look at verse 10. What does he have to say about these things? I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Okay, so right here, when he says revived, it's interesting, this little word here, because it's used really only in uh, terms of gardening, and it's talking about flowers and about how a flower that once bloomed but is no longer blooming, it blooms again. And so that's the idea of revived here, is that it, it's not as though it died, but it had no opportunity to bloom. And so that's exactly what Paul's saying here to the church, is that you once had an opportunity to bloom, and you did, and now you went through a time when you weren't dead, you wanted to bloom, but you had no opportunity to bloom, and so now you have an opportunity to revive your concern for me, to bloom again in caring for me. And so that's exactly what he's talking about. You were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Do you see it? And so what is the opportunity to revive concern for Paul? The fact that he's in prison. This is the opportunity. They have cared for Paul. They have concerned for him. But at one time, he seemed as though he didn't really need anything that the church could provide for him. He was doing fine. But now Paul finds himself in a situation where the church says, ha, You're in a need, and we can meet that need, and we want to meet that need, and so here's our opportunity, and so what do we do? We're going to take one of our own members, Epaphroditus, and we're going to send him to you, and he's going to bring with him uh, some gifts, and he's going to help you in whatever your circumstances are. Prisoners at that time, they could receive 
uh, gifts and, and have visitors and things like that. It's a different circumstance. But um, Epaphroditus comes and he's staying with Paul and he's giving, he's supplying his needs. If Paul needs something, he can go to the market and get it for him. And so he's helping. And really, you remember when we talked about Epaphroditus, Epaphroditus, it seems, was meant to stay there indefinitely. But what happened to Epaphroditus? He got sick. And so Paul all of a sudden got concerned for Epaphroditus and said, listen, I, I, I really appreciate your heart in sending him to care for me. And I know you're very concerned for me. And I see it, and this was a great opportunity to let your concern for me be made known. You sent Epaphroditus with gifts, and he's staying here. But listen, he's sick. And even his heart is sick. He wants to see you all again. And it's just making me anxious, him being here, because I want him to be happy. I want you to be happy. So I'm sending him back. And he, they send Epaphroditus back to Philippi with this very letter that we're reading today. That's how the, the letter made it to Philippi, was by means of the hand of Epaphroditus. And so, here he finds himself. Before we move on to Paul's main point here, there's something that's being implied, and I want to draw it out for us. The church's service to Paul through Epaphroditus was understood to be the very work of Christ. He says that back in chapter 2, verses 29 and 30. He says, Receive him, that is Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. So the work of helping Paul in his need was the work of Christ. Do you see it? So when the church had care for Paul and sent him help, that is the work of Christ. That's good. But what does that teach us by implication? That ministering to the needs of the saints is an important responsibility for the church. Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There's a little bit of a longer discourse Paul gives on this in 2 Corinthians 8. I want to look at it just for a second. It says, We want to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Hang on a second. If you tuned out for a second, listen to what this just said. In a severe test of affliction... They had an abundance of joy. And in extreme poverty, they had a wealth of generosity. Do you see those two opposites there? This was the condition of the church. So what did they do in their extreme uh, generosity? They gave according to their means. And as I can testify, beyond their means. Of their own accord, be, uh, begging us earnestly for the favor of God and the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves to the Lord by the will of God. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he had started so they should complete among you this very act of grace, excelling in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in their love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. You know how the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that in his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you. 
who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also had a desire to do it. So now finish doing it. Your readiness in desiring it, that it may be matched in completing it in what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and that there may be fairness. What is all that I just read? There's a lot of text. Here's the point is that Paul was yet commending another church for the sake of their giving to other people, to other saints, to other believers. What they were doing was a good thing. And Paul was saying, continue to do this work. You have a desire in your heart to share what you have do this more and more. Excel in it. You have a desire. See that your outworking of it matches the desire of your heart. And isn't that actually where we need to land? Sometimes doesn't the genuine desire of our heart fail to meet what we actually do? We have a desire to do something and I want to care and I want to give and I, uh, the, uh, you know, it's there. My intentions are right, but it just seems as though I can't ever get there with what I'm actually doing, the actual outworkings of what I'm doing. But Paul is saying, he says, I I know that you have a desire to be giving and to support the needs of the saints, but you need to be careful that your actions are meeting your desires. And so with the church in Philippi, we see here that in action, don't we? Is that the church had a desire to support Paul in his need, and they followed through with it. And he is praising them for it. And he's saying, thank you for following through. I want to encourage you as I'm encouraging myself because we need the encouragement here is that the desire to do something is good but we need to match our actions with the desires of our hearts. And sometimes isn't that quite a hurdle to jump? But yet this is the hurdle that we need to jump according to scripture is that you have a desire great. Now follow through with what that desire is. Now if you don't even have the desire that's a deeper issue. If you don't even have a desire to be giving, if you don't even have a desire to support someone in their need, there's a bigger spiritual problem. And Paul is saying the reason you don't see that need, why you don't experience that need, is because you don't realize how needy you were before Christ. You don't realize what Christ has done for you. Because if you did, you would have an abundance of giving in your heart because you have been given so much. So he's saying, understand the gospel and how it works out in your life. And it should be that you love the people. You love believers. And in your love, you want to support them in their need. This is a good thing. This is a good thing, but we need to follow through with it. In 1 John chapter 3, I'm just going to read something here because John says something that it just ties things together. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. If you see someone in need and you have the world's goods in order to support that need, and yet you close your heart off and you say, no, that's mine. I earned that. That is mine. I don't want to go out of my way to give that to you. Imagine if that was the attitude of God in Christ Jesus. What would you have? You would have nothing. And so if this is your attitude towards others, how is the love of God dwelling in you? How is the love of God abiding in you 
if you too don't also have a heart of generosity for the brothers? Is the heart of the church one that desires to help one another in need? Is it your heart this morning? It was the heart of the church in Philippi to help those in need, to help Paul in his need. And they went way out of their way, but there was one guy who stepped up to the extreme here, didn't he? Epaphroditus who said, I will, I will go. I'll give up my situation. I'll give up what, do you think Epaphroditus had family in Philippi? He had somebody there, didn't he? Did he have a life of his own in Philippi? And yet he gave that up to go and travel to wherever Paul was to give, him, give his life in service to Paul. And my heart breaks sometimes when I think about uh, Epaphroditus because you know it was his intention to give his life to Paul, but yet he got sick. And he said, like, I tried. <laughs> I tried. I'm trying to do this thing, and now I'm sick. And isn't that when sickness hits? You're trying to do something here, and I'm sick, and I just I can't follow through. But man... Epaphroditus had a heart of giving his own life. And when you reflect on that, is that true of your character in any way? Is that true of your character in any way? That you're just ready to give? That you're ready to consider others as more significant than yourself? Which is the very thing Paul is trying to teach us, isn't it? And he's saying, Epaphroditus has done this. You have done this as a church, Philippi. Now, continue doing so. This is a great lesson for us to understand. I didn't want to pass this over without seeing the great implications that this has for us as a church. Let's look at verse 11, because Paul's getting to a particular point here, and I want to get to it. In verse 11, it says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So, the church looks at Paul. He's in prison. He has a great need, they think. So we're going to go out of our way to support him in his need. Now, Paul comes back, and he's basically saying this. That was really generous. Really great of you guys. I'll thank you for doing that. I'll accept the gift. Um, but you need to know that ultimately, I, I don't really need help. I'm fine. I'm fine here. I know it, you're looking at my situation, and you see that I'm in prison, and I, all I was doing was preaching the gospel, and now look where it's landed me. And there are people who are even trying to inflict me in my imprisonment as he's told them already. And they think he's in a bad situation. Let's do whatever we can to help him. Is good on their end, but Paul is looking at them and saying, listen, I need you to understand that ultimately, even though I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you, that my needs are met. How are your needs met, Paul? You're in prison. You need help, don't you? You need money, don't you? You need food, don't you? You need clothes, don't you? Epaphroditus is there to give you all this help and support that you need. And Paul says, listen, I'm going to send him back because you know what? I'm okay, really. I'm doing okay. Because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. This word content here, it's, an, it's, it's another one of these interesting words, and the reason for that is because it was used quite a bit in secular Greek philosophy. And ultimately, the two, that's two words that combine together, and it really means self-rulership uh, self is what the word really means. It means you rule yourself, you're self-sufficient. That's what content means here. I can take care of myself. What did it mean in Greek philosophy, which 
came into Roman philosophy, right? And was Philippi Roman? Yes. And so was there Roman and Greek philosophy being taught and lived in the culture? So would they have come across some of the teachings here of how this word was used in secular writing and thought? I think absolutely yes. I think Paul knew that when I say this, they're going to know what it means. Here's what was being said at this time. Seneca, for example, who was a Greek philosopher, he said, The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Now, that word for content is the same word that Paul used for content. Seneca was a contemporary of Paul's. He was writing about it at the same time. And so, in these ideas of Greek thought, Paul is saying, I have learned contentment. Do you know how the Stoics, the Greek philosophers, have learned contentment? I have learned contentment. But it's different than theirs. I've learned the secret to contentment. They think they've learned the secret to contentment, but I'm here to tell you I have learned the secret of contentment. Being in control of your emotions and rising above your circumstances was the, uh, for the Stoics, it was their mentality. Rise above your emotions. Rise above your circumstances and just be okay. You ever heard someone say you're kind of being stoic right now? That you're showing no emotion. You're, it's, it, your circumstances are not affecting you. I remember years ago, someone said, you're being very stoic. And I remember the person left and I said to Amanda, what does that mean? Stoic. And so I remember I looked it up. You got to Google it. I Googled it. And I said, what does stoic mean? And it was, it was eye-opening to me because I was thinking, I, I, I guess that was how I was acting. It's not how I felt on the inside. It's how I was acting on the outside. I was acting like nothing was affecting me, but it wasn't true. But it's what it looked like. Is that the idea of the Stoics? You know, this was a whole religion, a whole school of thought for them. So is Paul embracing this idea? No, he's, he's contrasting a true idea with a false idea. He's saying the Stoics believe this in their secular philosophies. They think they have the world all figured out. He said, no, I, I have figured it out and I'm gonna share it with you. Paul's about to share with us what he has figured out, which is true. Before we do that, this isn't just an ancient concept, by the way. Sometimes uh, I'll explain something from the text and it's got its historical roots and you think, well, all great and well, that's fine for them. That was old. We don't deal with that anymore. We deal with things of today, right? I'm telling you, we still deal with this same concept today. And, and I can illustrate that for you just by, I don't know how many of you have one of these things. I know several of you do, okay? It, it's it's an Apple Watch and it randomly dings and tells me different things all the time. One of the things that I sense turned off, but it will just randomly pop up and the application name is mindfulness. And it'll say, take a moment to reflect. (laughs) Hmm. Indeed, I will. And so I take a moment to reflect. No, I don't actually. I've never once followed the advice of my watch. Amanda says she hates the uh, it's time to stand uh, notification because <laughs> if, you, if you sit down for too long, it says time to stand up. <coughs> yeah, but anyway, what is this mindfulness concept? It's actually integrated into the software here. To it, That's how pervasive it is. What is mindfulness? 
Have you heard of this concept of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice can open up new possibilities for contentment, joy, self-efficacy, growth, and compassion. And everyone says, well, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want contentment? Who doesn't want joy? Who doesn't want growth? Who doesn't want to be compassionate? I want, give me the whole package. How do I get it? Mindfulness. And so the developers there at Apple said, Let's, this is so true. Let's even integrate it into our software so that everyone can become aware of this. John Kabat-Zinn, you've never heard of him, I assume. He is known as the man of our age who has bridged Buddhism into secular Western thought. And here's what he said. The central mission of my work and that of my colleagues at the Center for Mindfulness has been to bring universal dharma into the mainstream of human activity for the benefit of as many people as possible. So how did the connection happen here? Is that there is an old ancient Buddhist practice of mindfulness. And now they say these are the teachings of Dharma, which are the teaching of Buddha, which are universal truths. And so we're going to take these universal truths. And it has been his life's mission and work to integrate these concepts into Western thought. And he's being successful. Paying attention, being fully aware of your body, your heart, and your mind. Awareness without judgment or criticism. It's a heart-to-heart connection with ourselves. The goal is to live in the here and now, not thinking of the past or the future. That's mindfulness. Those are all quotes from John Kabat-Zinn. Whether Greek Stoicism or Buddhist mindfulness... Humanity is in search of contentment, and it shows. But the question I have for you is, how do you attempt to establish contentment in your own troubled life? Because if we're not careful, we're going to introduce practices into our own lives that are not in accordance with truth. And what is so wrong with mindfulness? I'm about to tell you, ultimately, not only that its roots are incorrect, by the way, you can't always t- you have the roots argument, okay? Just because it started here, everything that follows after it is wrong, bad. You can't do that. You don't do that in your own life, okay? Case in point is the Christmas tree over here, okay? But just because it started somewhere doesn't mean it, it, it is always that. But there is something here, is that humanity is in search of contentment and it's finding it here. Contentment is here. Not thinking about the future, not thinking about the past, but just being here now in the moment. Tell me, is this what our scriptures tell us to think about? Weren't we just told what to think about? So let's learn the secret. I'm ready. Here's what he says next. Verse 12. He says, I've I've learned the secret. I'm about to share it with you. What is it? He says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every and any circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
We have one more verse, but we're going to stop first. Paul knows how to live in circumstances where he's humbled. He knows how to be content in these situations, how to face plenty, how to face hunger, how to face abundance, how to face need. Why would you need to learn the secret of contentment when you have plenty and abundance? Do you realize that's what he just said? I've learned the secret to contentment when I have everything my heart has ever desired. Why do you need contentment when you have everything? Listen to what Proverbs 38 and 9 says. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And so here, the proverb is is teaching us that if we have too much, we are not actually reliant on the Lord from the heart, but we're reliant on what we have, and that satisfies us. And so we say, I don't, I don't need God. I have what I need right here in my hands. I don't need God. But the opposite is, is just as true, is that if I don't have anything, it's going to lead me to having these feelings of negativity toward my situation. And for the person writing the proverb, it's that I might be poor and steal and profane God. And I don't want that either. And so where do I need to find myself in this balance? Is having what is needful for me now, here, today. And this is very much proven with Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? When he says, give us today our daily bread. Not give me all the bread I'll need for the rest of my life today so that I can be settled about it. But instead, it's daily bread that we are reliant upon the Lord every day. You are reliant upon the Lord for today, and tomorrow you will be reliant on the Lord for tomorrow. You see how that works? So Paul then has learned this secret. But secrets in the ancient days were a little bit different than our secrets. Because when Paul says secret, he's yet again using a word that was used during that day. And here's what it referred to. It referred to something known as mystery cults. Now, we have mystery cults here today, and doesn't that sound intriguing? A mystery cult. Um, Our church has been called a mystery cult, and I the leader. Anyway, what do you think about that? I don't know. Salvation could be found if cosmic life was dispensed to you. Through a priest and union with the gods, the cultic rites are initiations, symbolic journeys, meals, and baptisms that lead you into this way where you can have cosmic life imputed to you, but only if you do the right things, only if you do rites and rituals. But for those who have done the rites and rituals and cosmic life has been dispensed to them, I like the word dispensed, I don't know, it reminds me of a Pez dispenser. But if life has been dispensed to you, then you have been initiated into the mysteries and you are to take a vow of silence about these mysteries. Sounds like other cults, doesn't it? Sounds like Mormonism, actually, doesn't it? 
um, that you do these rites and rituals, but you're not allowed to talk about them. You've been given life by means of these rites and rituals, but you can't talk about how that was given to you or your rites of initiation. But here, in ancient uh, terms, it was secret, hidden, divine teachings that you came encounter with. Secret, hidden, divine teachings that no one could tell you about. You had to experience them yourself. So this is the very word that Paul uses. And why is this interesting? It's because he says, I've learned the secret initiatory rites. I've gone through them myself. And now I'm going to share them with you. I'm not going to keep them to myself. I'm not going to take a vow of silence. I'm going to share with you the thing that other people say you can't ever share. In other words, Paul's circumstances in his life have initiated him into a secret knowledge. That Paul's lows and his highs, having abundance, having need, have initiated him into having this secret knowledge. In other words, God has been teaching him through his circumstances. Has God been teaching you through your circumstances? Has he been teaching you in the highs when you have much? Has he been teaching you in the lows when you have little? Does he teach you more when you have little? And so here it is as we look at the last verse together. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is it. This is where everything he's been saying the past several verses, it's, it's come to the climax here. I've learned the secret. I know how to be content. I'm not needful. You see me as being needful, but I'm, I'm fine, really. And how are you fine? You're in prison. You have enemies all around you. You need food. You need clothing, Paul. He says, I'm fine. I've, I've learned, okay? I've learned how to be content. And guess where it's found? Guess where this secret is? The secret to personal contentment and self-sufficiency is found where? Not in myself. The secret does not lie within ourselves. And this is the great lie of our day. Don't you know that happiness, joy, contentment, peace is found where? In inner peace. Within you. Come to terms with your situation with yourself. Know yourself better. And if all these things happen to line up, you, you get self-aware and you just become numb to your circumstances, then everything is going to be fine. Everything is going to be okay. And you have found that peace where? Within yourself. But Paul says the true mystery of contentment is not found in yourself. It's found outside of yourself. True contentment is found outside of yourself, not inside of yourself. What does he mean when he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me or through him who gives me strength? What does all things refer to there? Does it mean all things? Sherry says yes. I'm going to say no. All things here does not mean all things. It does not mean if I want to fly, I can fly in Christ. So it does not mean all things. It's actually referring back to its context. I can face abundance and need and plenty and want. All these things, all these situations I can face through him who gives me strength, in him who gives me strength. So all these things, I, how, do you, how can you do it, Paul? 
How can you have contentment in your life? Through Christ who gives me the strength to do so. It is not in you. You are not the one that's gonna bring yourself contentment in this life. I have to tell you that this text has always, for many years, baffled me. And you may have heard me even reference it from time, that Paul learned the secret of contentment I so desperately want to myself. Contentment for me is, a, is an inner battle. Finding contentment is difficult for me. It may be for you. I have tried many things to find contentment. Contentment with my circumstances. I'm not all that content. Do you want me to give you an example of how deep my discontentment goes? This is driving me crazy. I can't get it off my mind that there's an extension cord hanging down behind me. I got, I got here this morning and water is coming out of our breaker panel. And several outlets are dead. I don't know why. But you know what? That's pretty insignificant. Think about all the other areas of my life that are actually are significant. This is a battle for me. I, I wonder, is it a battle for you? Are there thoughts, worries, and concerns that press in on you from all directions? And so Paul says to us what? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer, in thankfulness in your heart, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what it says? Isn't that what he just said? I mean, it wasn't too many verses ago that he said that. And then he says, now, what are you to do with your mind then? What am I to think about then? Things that are good and godly and right and helpful and beneficial, the things that are true, the things that are lovely. Think about those things. Think about God himself. It's really a distinction here, isn't it, between being self-sufficient, self-reliant, and Christ-sufficient and Christ-reliant. The world around us is gonna say the way to peace is in you. You have to change yourself somehow, and if you do it properly, you're gonna eventually find it in the maze of your own mind. We try all these different channels. And when those don't work enough, do you know what you do is you find distractions, is that the TV comes on a lot more than it should. I want to numb my mind. Or you find other ways to numb your mind because I don't want to think about these things anymore. For some people, it's addiction to shopping. For some people, it's an addiction to substances. For some, it's relationships. For some, it's, it could be so many things that we begin to distract ourselves with so many things because you want to numb how you actually feel. But there is contentment to be found and there's a secret to it, a secret that only those who are in Christ get to experience. But yet, he's writing to those who are already in Christ and yet are discontent. And so that's the truth that we have to face, isn't it? Is that we are yet in Christ and we're still facing discontentment. How can we possibly be discontent when we have everything? How can we possibly be discontent with our circumstances if we have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? If we have the great treasure himself, how can we possibly be discontent? And yet we still find a way. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't be anxious about anything. Think about these things. When? 
When am I to rejoice in the Lord? When am I to not be anxious about anything? When am I to think about the godly things and practice them? Always. What about in the insignificant things? Always. In the very significant things? Always. And so we ask, but how? Not by means of self-manipulation. The answer to our contentment is not within us. It is outside of us. It is in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you truly believe that God is your sufficiency? Do you say all I have is Christ and all I need is Christ? Or do we like the idea of that, but it doesn't actually communicate to our hearts? I love the idea, and I know that it's true that all I need is Christ. All I have is Christ, and so therefore all I need is Christ until it affects my circumstances. I can joyfully say all I need is Christ when I have new clothes on, driving a car that works just fine. I got a place to sleep tonight. I have plenty of food in the refrigerator in the pantry at home. Things are going pretty well. It's fine. Relationships are going good. I have no issues. So all I need is Christ, and, I say, and it's lovely, right? But then when these things are stripped from you, do you still, just as joyfully, just as contented, do you still say and proclaim and believe, all I have is Christ, all I need is Christ, and therefore my heart is joyful and I have contentment in my circumstances. Whether my relationships are going well or they're not, whether I'm seeing financial prosperity in my life or whether I'm not, right? Whether I'm sick or whether I'm well, all I have is Christ, all I need is Christ. This is our contentment. I'm going to end today by reading uh, two verses from Psalm 73 for you. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, listen to what it says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I just wonder this morning, however true you already know that to be and you memorized it maybe years ago, that's okay, that's good. But I just wonder today, even I think it's beneficial as we're considering starting a brand new year and starting new patterns of thought, patterns of behavior, that's good, that's a good thing to do. Think about where we're falling short in our spiritual life. What do we need to do differently? As individuals, as a church, we need to collectively work on contentment joyful contentment regardless of our circumstances. Do you truly believe there is nothing on earth that you desire besides God himself? This is a difficult thing, isn't it? Especially in the society that we live in because we are told and we see with our eyes that everything, we, the, the world is ours and they have it, I should have it too. That family has really obedient children. 
How are they sitting there in the restaurant and not going crazy? I want that. This person seems to have all the relationships together that should be mine. This person has all the money in the world. How do they have that much money? I'm scraping by every day. Do you know it's always something? Money doesn't satisfy. Money doesn't bring contentment. A lot of us think that sometimes. Solving your relationship issues doesn't bring you contentment. We think it sometimes though, don't we? You're never going to have contentment in this life unless you find your absolute sufficiency in Christ and in Christ alone. And this is where our hearts need to be. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's all pray together. Lord, we admit to you the struggle of this text and applying it to our lives. And we go through seasons, seasons of seeming as though we are content, that we have joy regardless of our circumstances like Paul. Paul who is in prison, an ancient prison that was far more brutal than we can imagine, being beaten, mocked, ridiculed, his life hunted, all for faith in Christ. And yet, here we are still struggling to find contentment even in little things. God, I pray that you would protect our minds, protect our hearts from false concepts of peace, false concepts of contentment, joy, And God, let us rest fully, entirely, completely in Christ alone. You are our portion. What else do we have but you? There is nothing on earth that we desire but you. I pray that you would give us strength to comprehend and believe and trust in all these things. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.